This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had this week. It is week nine. Reality check is what we've called it, Jason. It's really become a realization among everyone, investors included, that perhaps they and their expectations about a reopening and economic recovery, well, maybe getting a little too ahead of themselves. Well, and that certainly was where the market was, right? I mean, yeah. we looked at a stock market that was very enthusiastic and certainly very optimistic. But over the course of this week, you're exactly right. It was reality check week. It was Anthony Fauci, the leading doctor, the leading voice from a healthcare perspective. It was Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed. And I have to say, it was a number of our guests, CEOs and investors that we spoke with throughout the week. Well, and I have to say, and we kind of dwelled on this a little bit, but Fauci and Powell, we called it the one-two punch in terms of reminding us you can't do this too fast, um, too soon in terms of reopenings and talking about the protracted economic impact. And I think it really, as we said, reality check because of these two. It was also another week with a staggering labor report. Number of Americans seeking unemployment benefits remained in the millions for an eighth straight week as the economy really just continuing to reel from the virus pandemic. So what are the biggest names in the world, in the world of business specifically? Think about this. We're going to hear from them. Uh, A fantastic interview. It's in the magazine this week that you did with Unilever CEO Alan Jope and old school, former American (laughs) Airlines chairman and CEO, Bob Crandall. Right. Who reminded us, the airline industry, they've seen a lot of up and down cycles, but he said this one is not the same. Also, we caught up with Christopher Gavigan. He's the co-founder of The Honest Company. He's now on another mission to bring products that relieve stress, which we could all certainly use right now. Absolutely. All that and much, much more. First up, though, the big story this week, one that impacted the equity market, top U.S. health officials testifying before the Senate. We talked about him just a minute ago, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease official. He warned against reopening the economy too soon and that communities doing so risk new coronavirus outbreaks. Safe to say, Jason, that was the testimony that really rocked the markets and gave everyone, as we said earlier, a reality check. Now, someone who has been one of our guiding voices when it comes to the virus is Andy Pekosh. He's a professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. He joined us once again, of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. He stressed, like so many others, that testing and contact tracing, they're going to make all the difference. You know, these are the things that everybody should be really aware of. Um, When we pull back public health interventions, we expect to see some cases come up. If we pull them back too soon, the magnitude of the cases, the number of cases will be higher. Um, If we're not prepared to do testing and really good contact tracing to identify the the people who have become in contact with infected people, we run the risk of having a a rather large second bounce back wave. Um, So it's really going to be important for us to time it right and be prepared to pull back these public health entrants so we can control the virus at a different level. Right. So I don't want to get political. That is certainly not my aim here. But I do wonder, coming off a press conference yesterday that was predominantly from the president and his team about testing and saying we have enough tests out there and everything that we need, tell me about that specific event and if we do indeed are doing the right kind of testing and that we are doing enough testing, especially, I think, 24 hours or was it this morning where Wuhan is talking about testing everybody in their city. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it really becomes a question of capacity. Um, you know, we're, cap- we're able to test in most parts of the country, and again, this can be different in different localities, right? Um, here in Maryland, we're doing a good job of testing the symptomatic individuals. Um, the turnaround time on tests are fairly good. Um, but what we'd like to be is a, a level above that. We want to be able to turn around tests really fast, within a day. You want to be able to test almost immediately people who have come in contact with the people who are sick so that you can catch them before they really start showing symptoms and tell them to quarantine a little bit earlier. So we need more testing. We need more coordination. We need more contact tracing to be able to deal with um, the situation when we relieve our public health interventions. You know, Dr. Pekash, I saw a poll this morning that was talking about contact tracing specifically, and people's willingness to participate was largely based on, their enthusiasm for it was largely based on who's doing the administering. What's the right method to go about doing that in your estimation? So, you know, the the best method is to have trained individuals who can... um, capture this information, contact you, and give you the correct information in terms of what needs to be done. Um, There are people at state public health and county public health departments um, who are doing this. Um, We here at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health have had a number of professors who have started courses to try to educate people in terms of how to do that, to increase the number of people that are capable of doing good social contact tracing. So there are some things that you need to know uh, be able to train to be do this, all quite possible, um, but you need to invest right now to increase those numbers of individuals again so you're ready when you pull back public health interventions. And that's Andy Pekosh, Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. As you can tell by the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, it's supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg LP parent of this radio station. Certainly one of my favorite voices to talk to, Jason. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we hear from Unilever CEO Alan Jope. You know their products. You use them every day. This CEO is thinking about everyone affected by the crisis. It's in the magazine, and it's your big interview, Carol Masser. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, all about the virus and what happens next. Yeah, and we're taking you inside the magazine this week, featuring a debrief with Alan Jope. He's the CEO of Unilever, massive consumer products company. You know, everything, Jason, from Dove Soap to Ben & Jerry's ice cream and so much more. There's 400 brands used by about 2.5 billion people daily. So we talked about a lot of things you know, what they're seeing in terms of what people are buying as a result of this shutdown and pandemic. But he also talked a lot about balancing profits with doing the right thing. We've been operating a multi-stakeholder model now for quite some time, for about 10 years now. Uh, We've been explicit that we believe that if we look after our employees and our customers, if we worry about society and the planet, Uh, If we take care of our supplier partners, um, then ultimately our shareholders will be well rewarded. And although we didn't honestly think it through that way, that was kind of how it played out for us. Our reflex was, first of all, to take care of our employees. I remember on March the 12th, which was a Thursday, our crisis team uh, saying we should go into an immediate 
global mandatory 100% indefinite lockdown for all office employees. At the time, it felt a little overwhelming, but it was in the interest of uh, protecting our employees. Um, By the Friday, when we announced it on the 13th, uh, it felt just right. By the Saturday, the 14th, I wasn't sure if we were moving fast enough. And this was ahead of uh, any government uh, suggestions of lockdown other than in China. And then quickly we turned to our community and you mentioned some of the things we tried to do there. Then we realized how important the ability to continue to supply, keeping our factories running and our supply networks running would be. Uh, Then we started to worry about cash and cost. Uh, And now at the moment we're trying to anticipate and work to uh, short and longer term changes in demand patterns. So I think that multi-stakeholder thinking, which we'd been getting used to for a decade, um, served as well in the initial days of this crisis. How surprised were you, though, by the scale and pace of the virus? I think one of the benefits of being a a truly global company, and remember, 60% of our turnover comes from outside of Western Europe and North America. Our, Our the biggest businesses in Unilever beyond the U.S. are India, Brazil, China, Indonesia. And so um, I'd been in daily contact with uh, our leader in China and our leader in in Italy. Um, We had had uh, employees impacted by coronavirus and we had already stood up uh, an international uh, crisis management team. Actually, I think before the beginning of March, uh, we had sort of anticipated this to come um, as it has. I must say though, I'm very worried about the global south. We've seen this play out where, you know, the healthcare systems of uh, of Wuhan, of Italy, of the United Kingdom, and the United States have at best been taxed and in some ways been overwhelmed. I'm very worried what's going to happen when this really takes hold in the favelas of Brazil, the townships of Africa, uh, the slums of India, and the refugee camps around the Middle East. I really don't think we've seen the worst human suffering yet, uh, as difficult as it is to say that. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think we talk about that too. We, we look at these developing markets. Um, what's your responsibility in helping those markets? And I'm just curious the conversations you might be having with leaders in those markets. Yeah, um, I think it's multifactorial, of course. I mean, our basic responsibility is people do need soap and bleach and surface cleaners and basic foodstuffs. Uh, Soap is at the moment still the first line of defense uh, against this virus. So our first responsibility is to keep manufacturing and and producing products. We've noticed most governments going through a predictable pattern, which is to underreact and then perhaps to overreact to the point where the whole supply chain in the country shuts down. And at that point, we, and we've been quite proactive with governments to say you really don't want to shut down supplies of essential goods. And we're in the middle of those discussions right now in the emerging market. You know, I was going to do this later, but let me bring in the polling question for our breakaway members. And I'll read it out for you, um, Alan. Which group of stakeholders should corporations be prioritizing right now? And the choices are employees, communities, shareholders, customers. So as everybody weighs in on that, how do you see it? I think I know your answer. Uh, Go ahead. Well, yeah, is that a one answer only question? Because in which case uh, it's a tough it's a tough call because ultimately you have to look after all these stakeholders, but it for sure begins with your employees. You know, uh, without uh, without showing authentic care for your employees, 
Um, you can't you can't respond. I mean, I don't do anything as the chief exec of this company. It's our frontline people who are making the goods, who are serving our customers. Uh, so that for me, that's where it starts. Paul seems to be kind well, of suggesting. I know you almost need you need an all of the all of the above. Well, talk to me about your work workers, because as we said at the top, you're taking care of your workers right now. Um, so you haven't laid anybody off. Does it get harder the longer this goes on? Yes, it does. Uh, we've got um, about 150,000 employees on the payroll. Um, although we think every day there's about 3 million people who work directly and only for Unilever. Um, but of those 150,000, there's about 70,000 of us who are office-based. There's about 50,000 of us who are in factories. And there's another 20 or 30,000 who operate in some kind of field sales uh, operation. Um, and we've had to take very different approaches for those different communities and also in different geographies at different points in time. So as I mentioned, um, all 70,000 office workers are working from home uh, with the exception of China where we're learning from China how to uh, reopen uh, offices, some do's and some don'ts. That's Unilever CEO Alan Jopes, the debrief this week in the magazine, and really talked about the pandemic, ultimately, Jason, kind of strengthening his resolve about being a purpose-led company and being accountable to all stakeholders, right? We talk about this, whether it's your consumers, your shareholders, your community at large, your employees. I mean, you really, especially in a crisis like this, you realize how everybody's impacted and how you really need to take care of all of them. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, these are words that we throw around all the time in sort of quote unquote normal times around strategy and especially leadership. And I do feel like leadership and leaders are being tested in unbelievable ways right now. So really great interview. Uh, Glad you got some time with Alan Jope. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we talk New England luxury resorts, turning the page with president (laughs) of the Ocean House Management Collection. What we're finding in the hospitality industry, it may be changed forever. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. And of course, Jason, all about the virus, kind of where we are today, what it looks like post-COVID-19. And I have to say, we have to remind everybody, all of this happening in real time as news continue to cross the Bloomberg Terminal. Absolutely. And one of our favorite conversations was with Daniel Hostetler. He's the president and managing director of the Ocean House Management Collection, the owner and operator of some absolutely beautiful properties. Mm. I felt like in talking to him and researching a little bit, I got a little bit of a window into what it's like to be Carol Masser. It's definitely going to be a challenge this summer. Like all uh, New England seaside destinations, you know, the majority of these properties up here make a good 60 to 70 percent of their business during during the height of the summer season. Um, we've, we've, we're working hard uh, communicating with the staff on a weekly basis. Uh, Zoom, I think, is the new go-to meeting <laughs> application, and so we get the entire company together every week um, for an hour to talk about what the plans are going forward uh, and keeping them informed. Uh, it's a challenging process because there aren't a lot of guidelines laid out yet. You know, first of all, it's individual state to state. And then uh, in our state, like in most states, there are not yet 
concrete guidelines that say how many people can you have in the restaurant, uh, how much capacity can you have on the beach or in the hotel. So we are sort of crisis planning with with uh, with in, in a lot of gray area. Uh, mainly, we're you know we're we're spending our time looking to reconcept. I think the food and beverage operations most of all. Uh, because that is clearly the area of concentration for the public. Right. And so let's talk about that. So so what are you doing, and how do you sort of work through something like this? As you say, you know, you're taking guidance from state officials and and local officials, but as a team, how do you do this sort of step-by-step? Well, for us, it started with uh, mapping the guest process from point of arrival on the driveway with the bellman to point of departure again with the bellman and every step in between Hmm. and asking ourselves, how are we going to conform to the best practices, the social distancing, and yet give a level of luxury service that the guests are used to, uh, and how do we make it a fun experience? So something as simple as housekeeping. Will the guests want us in the room twice a day as traditionally? So we've we've approached that and said, you know, we're going to, whenever possible, we're going to deliver the service that we've always delivered and we're going to let the guest guide us. So we are going to say housekeeping services are twice daily, but if you would prefer once daily, we can do that. If you would prefer just clean towels brought to you every day, we can certainly accommodate that as well. It's, It's sort of taking every touch point and trying to find out how we keep the guests safe, how we keep our staff safe, and still deliver a unique experience. Well, Daniel, I do wonder in terms of, as you mentioned, you know, for food and beverage, you're looking to reconcept it. Does that include maybe more folks eating in their rooms or perhaps you set up space outside? I mean, do you think about that? Yes, we absolutely are doing that. We're looking at uh, a unique dining menus, taking restaurants that were traditional sit down and making them fast casual where you walk away and pick your own seat. Uh, coming up with a picnic platter menu that where you can say, I would like to eat on the beach, I would like to eat on the croquet lawn, and your food will be there set on a table for you when you, when you arrive for dinner that evening. Those sorts of unique dining experiences that wouldn't be traditional. I do wonder uh, about the staff, and you said you know, you're briefing them every week and, and presumably hearing their concerns as well. How do you make that side of it uh, work as an employer? Well, we want to make sure that when we bring them back that it's safe for them as well. So in the same way, we are asking them to sign a health pledge that um, that our guests know that they're taking their temperature before they come to work every day and washing their hands every 30 minutes, etc. We will have signage throughout the hotels asking the guests to do similar things, to practice social distancing, and, you know, and, and we're providing all of the masks and gloves and equipment that the staff needs to feel safe. And that's Daniel Hostetler, the president of the Ocean House Management Collection. Carol, you had sort of turned me on to at least remotely yeah. uh, these properties. You've been there. You've sailed there. I mean, it's pretty remarkable what they have, but also what they are trying to do to get back. Yeah, and they definitely tap into the New York tri-state area in terms of the folks that come to stay at their properties over the summer season. I mean, that is when they get the bulk of their business, something like 60 to 70 percent. They expect business to be down 40 percent, and yet they're mapping out process by process, you know, their way back. And I love the way he said it, from arrival with the bellman to departure with the bellman, they've got to figure out every step of the way to make sure that everybody, their workers, 
workers as well as those that come to stay at their properties stay safe. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we stay with the travel and hospitality business. We catch up with airline industry legend Bob Crandall, the former chairman and CEO of American Airlines. Knows that industry so well. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations Carol and I had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, all about where we are fighting the virus, but also economically and from a business perspective, where we go next. That's right, Jason. And we had the opportunity, I have to say, this was one of those interviews you and I were looking very forward to. And it was with Bob Crandall. He's the former chairman, president, and CEO of American Airlines, ran the airline in the 80s and 90s. And what's interesting is someone who has seen so many different cycles, so many different regulatory environments when it comes to the airline industry. And, you know, it really struck me when he said, listen, we all know up and down cycles. This is like no other. Listen up. I think you got to recognize, Carol, and I'm sure you do, and I'm sure most people do. This is this isn't the usual kind of up and down cycle in the airline business. This is this is a matter of the general public feeling unsafe in closely packed or closely spaced public spaces. So you've seen restaurants take a, 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 a tremendous hit. You've seen cruise ships take a tremendous hit, and and airlines, of course, are sort of the the penultimate example of packing people together to get from point A to point B for as little money as possible. In a, in a, nonetheless, in a reasonably convenient way as compared to covered wagons, for example. <laughs> so, so, so what you've got now is, now you've got, you, you have to ask yourself, how long will it be before people feel truly safe? And I think the answer is that they're not going to feel truly safe. Most people aren't going to feel truly safe until, A, we have a vaccine, B, we have a cure, and C, we have much, much, much more systematic testing and tracking than we have today. We are, and we're amateurs in terms of testing and tracking. It just hasn't been set up. There is no plan. It isn't happening. So until until we can solve those three problems and thereby alleviate the public's concern, I think most people are going to stay home. And, of course, that's very bad for the airline business. And so if you were running an airline right now, what do you do? Well, I think I I would be doing. I think think the people that are running airlines these days are doing pretty much all they can. In the first instance, they are doing all they are in collaboration with the with the uh, programs that have been passed by the Congress, they're keeping their people paid. Mm-hmm. They are doing all that they can to minimize their expenses. They are parking airplanes. They are retiring some of the older airplanes. They're they're <clears throat> they're stopping some of the flights uh, in, in in some careful way so that they meet the terms of the legislation, and they provide at least minimum service. But the fact is, they're flying as little as they possibly can. They are doing what they can to clean the, the, the airline terminals. They are doing what they can to clean the airplanes. Uh, they, are, they are teaching their employees how to deal with masks and, and uh, in some cases, temperature testing. So I think they've, got, I think they've, they've had quite a, uh, uh, quite a generous or uh, creative mm-hmm. set of things to do, uh, all of them addressing two issues. One, how do we make the public feel safe? 
And second, how do we minimize our costs so as to preserve our ability to return to act uh, to active flying once it's possible to do so. Well, let's continue our conversation with Bob Crandall. So excited to catch up with him, especially at this time of unbelievable turmoil and a lot of angst, to say the least, about the future of the airline industry. So, Bob, I'm guessing you saw the comments that uh, Dave Calhoun, the Boeing CEO, made about not only capacity, but taking that to its logical conclusion and saying we may see a major airline go out of business before the end of the year or early into 2021. What do you make of that? Yeah, I don't I don't know why uh, Calhoun wants to get himself involved in that. He's, he's uh, I, do, I really don't see why he'd make a comment like that. It, it might be true, it might not be true. Dave has much better, uh, much closer uh, access to the, of the different carriers than I do. I've been out of the industry a long time. Sure. And he, he, looks, at them, uh, he looks at them very closely because, of course, they're all customers. Uh, some of those numbers are looking pretty foreboding to him, and I wouldn't be surprised uh, that they are looking foreboding to him. The question of whether anybody will go out of business, I'll leave to others. But the fact of the matter is, everybody is, is each every airline is a hurting cowboy these days. Yeah. Well, well, what's interesting too, and you know, we talked a little bit, Bob, initially about what's going on in the debt markets, and you know, American Airlines not alone, but their debt falling further into distressed territory. Um, you know, we've, and as you said, and rightfully so, this is unlike any other cycle that that we've seen before. We've already seen a lot of consolidation. Do you anticipate that there's going to be more as a result of uh, the pandemic and the shutdown? Carol, I, I I honestly don't know. I think, look, just as a as a as a practical matter, yeah. if you take six enterprises and they all fall into a state of difficulty, and if you could if you could do the work of those six enterprises with uh, only a, a portion of the people and certainly a, a, a portion of the overheads, then you would say to yourself gee, why don't we do some consolidation here and see if we can become more efficient? So, yes, I'm sure there are people thinking about that. Now, I, I, think, we, I think in the United States we need to approach consolidation of businesses very carefully. We have been very lax in terms of enforcing the antitrust rules. Uh, we have a dramatic shrinkage of the number of public companies uh, traded in the United States and a substantial diminishment of the level of real competition. Mm-hmm. So what the, what the proper public policy may be, be with respect to the airlines is a broader question than we have time to discuss today, but I think that's the right question. Right. Not, not the question of what may be the most efficient way for the airlines to organize themselves, but whether in, the, in a broader social context, we want to see any further diminishment of competition within the industry. So from a public policy perspective, and you're right, we could spend hours talking about it in in detail, Bob. But right. one question that I have for you is, in terms of the federal government's response to this specific pandemic, has the government done the right thing and have they done enough for the airline industry? Well, I think, I think they've done the right thing. You know, the underlying issue is this. If you go back to 911, uh, the public had to bail out the airline industry. And now, uh, once again, uh, the public has to bail out the airline industry. That's not an adverse comment on the airline industry and the way it's run. 
it, it, it's just the way it is. The, the airline business is a, a, a very important business in the United States. In order to be efficient, it has to have a lot of capacity, and particularly to accommodate the growing public desire for travel. Uh, and it is subject to these very severe ups and downs when, when we have these kind of black swan events. So I, I think one of the realities of life is that the public generally and the government as its, as its instrument has to recognize that it is always going to have to be the insurer of the airline business. And as the insurer, uh, it, it may want to impose uh, certain, some kind of regulation, not the kind of regulation we used to have, mm-hmm. where you, you, know, you couldn't fly here and you couldn't charge that. But, but a level of regulation that would say, wait a minute, during the good times, maybe it would be a good thing if all the airlines, instead of buying back their stock, mm. right, simply set aside all of the excess cash that they can set aside so that to a greater extent than has been true in the past, they are able to self-insure. Right. And I, I think as a matter of public policy, that's something we really do have to focus on. Yeah, that's fascinating. So wait, okay, forgive my sarcasm. Good luck with that. How do you get something like that done in this environment? Well, Carol, look, what you're talking about, what you, you are talking about in this environment is the tremendously bitter political uh, warfare that's going on in the United States. Uh, it, it, it wasn't always like this. Yeah. Uh, between Essentially between the end of World War II and the mid-1980s, uh, there, there was political disagreement, but there wasn't the level of, of rancor that we have today. Yeah. If we want to reclaim the country and if we want to make sensible decisions, people are going to have to back off their extreme ideologies, both the left and the right. And we're going to have to find some better solutions than we have found so far. So the answer to your question is, how do we get it done? Mm. Mr. and Mrs. America has to make up their mind. They're going, to, they're going to stop with the political nonsense. They're going to stop rewarding ideological extremity, and they're going to return to a, a sense of the common good. What is best for all of us? That's former American Airlines Chairman, President, and CEO Bob Crandall. And, you know, bottom line, Jason, you know, this industry is going to be changed, the airline industry, for a long time. We know that. We see the numbers. We see the stories on the Bloomberg every day. And what's interesting, he said, you know, travelers, it's just about them feeling safe. They don't feel safe right now, so they're not going to travel. And he says, we probably don't feel safe until we have a vaccine. Bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, this is a guy who's seen some things. And when you have someone with that sort of historical perspective, essentially say, in your parlance, whoa, you tend (laughs) to uh, listen up. All right. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including an interesting conversation with Christopher Gavigan. He's the co-founder of The Honest Company. You know it, right? Founded with Jessica Alba, the actress. So we're going to talk about what he's seeing uh, along those lines. And also, he's got a new startup. It really is about working with CBD and providing products that relieve stress to consumers. Plus, how Gilead's remdesivir is a rare example of foresight in this pandemic. It's this week's cover story in the magazine. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. 
Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations Carol and I had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. That's right. All happening in real time as the news around us was constantly changing. And we really tried to reach out to different industries, really get a global perspective and a macro perspective of this pandemic. One of the voices we turned to was Christopher Gavigan. He's the co-founder of The Honest Company. And he is now, Jason, bringing products to consumers to help them deal with stress. We also caught up with restaurateur Rick Wallstead. He's got restaurants in Atlanta, right around the corner from our New York headquarters, as well as in Connecticut and Houston. What it's like to reopen, he gave us the playbook. And I said, you know, Chris Gavigan bringing products to relieve stress. Talkspace CEO Oren Frank, he's the subject of a story also in the magazine this week. He too is finding a way to bring therapy to people who are dealing with stress and anxiety during the shutdown. In a virtual way, of mm-hmm. course. First up, let's go inside the magazine, the cover story. It's all about how Gilead's Remdesivir is an example of foresight in this pandemic. We caught up with magazine editor Joel Weber and the writer of the piece, Robert Langreth. From the beginning of this, it was kind of fairly clear that there weren't that many drugs that could do that had like lab data against coronaviruses that could go right into trials, right into human trials. And this was one of the kind of handful of them. So from very early on, you know, if there was going to be an early drug for coronavirus, this was likely to be it. So I was paying attention early on. I was talking to Gilead, you know, early on trying to get interviews with some of their executives, which was very hard to do. But one thing we were able to get, you know, before things completely closed up, we were able to get a uh, freelance photographer, you know, into uh, one of their their plants where they're filling the vials out in California. This is right as everything was shutting down in mid-March and, you know, probably one of the last days we could have done it. We got a photographer there and got some of these great pictures and great videos, which just, you know, really helped make the story. And then uh, I just kept talking to them and, uh, you know, getting some more detail about the early history of this compound. And then, you know, finally I was able to uh, get an interview with one of the top, you know, manufacturing experts who told me, you know, all the the 70 different chemicals went into this and they gave it 25 different steps and he kind of compared it to uh, making a very uh, fancy, very specific, you know, loaf of, of type of bread at a bakery. You know, if you don't, if you don't order a huge amount of your specialty flour in advance, you have to wait for the new crop of wheat to grow. That's going to be a big delay. So that's what right. they did right. in January. They, all the specialty ingredients, you know, they order from the suppliers in China and Europe way in advance. That was like the biggest, smartest thing that they did. Yeah, it's that's really such a key detail. I uh, want to bring in Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Brooklyn. And Joel, you put this on the cover. It makes a huge amount of sense because uh, it's such a good read. Give us the context from your perspective because you're looking across all of these stories, not just as it relates to the coronavirus, but across the world of business. So, I, you know, I think this story's significance is, is huge. Um, and it's also the way that I, I think is the best way to think about this. It's almost like like the most hopeful news, the only hopeful news yeah. we've basically had to date in this uh, coronavirus saga. You, you know, it's like, it, it just feels like it's one bit of bad news after the next, and it's almost like this cacophony of incompetence sometimes. And so I, what I think Bob was able to do in this Gilead story was actually show, like, here's a, an example of, like, one of the only ones, really, of a company that had incredible foresight and preparedness. And, you know, had they not actually ordered the raw materials that they needed to, to actually make this treatment back in January, even before it was, you know, before we knew how bad this was going to be, 
had they not done that back then, we would not have the treatment that we suddenly have. You know, and like to be sure, this is not a cure, it's a treatment. Mm-hmm. It takes coronavirus from being a, a 15 day hospitalization down to maybe like an 11, COVID, um, down to like an 11. So, you know, it's, it's a modest improvement over nothing, but at least it's something. And, you know, Bob, as, as you sort of, you know, reported around this, you know, it, it's actually even more incredible than that because this was a drug that actually, you know, has been around for like 11 years now and it never could find a purpose even, right? What, what's the backstory? Yeah, they first invented it for, you know, looking for hepatitis C drugs, but it was hard to administer, and they had better ones that were pills, so it was kind of shelf for that. And then, you know, they tried it for, you know, Ebola, and they uh, spent years on that, you know, because at first they tested it for one Ebola outbreak, but then the outbreak faded before they could get it into human trials, and then they tested it in a recent Ebola outbreak, and then it didn't work that well. So they, uh, but in the, and so they were trying to figure out what to do next, you know, and when the COVID came along. And they did the, the thing that they did differently was they did not in January they didn't assume the best case scenario they didn't say hey let's wait a few weeks and see if this goes away they kind of said hey in case this is a pandemic we're going to order a whole bunch of stuff right now and that's just very different from what a lot of other folks did. I have to say what's really cool in this story and if, if people don't totally understand how significant this is it, it you write in the story how Anthony Fauci has pointed out that he has likened the trial of remdesivir to the first big trial of AZT the first drug for mm. HIV right and so then you understand because that too was something we just couldn't figure out a treatment and so you understand Bob how remdesivir is really a first very important step uh, yeah absolutely I mean the way to think of this is you know is as like a first step a first thing there's you know as the CEO of Gilead himself says we're going to need a lot more drugs they're working on better drugs uh, better uh, ways to administer it right now it's an infusion and we're definitely going to need vaccines so this doesn't you know solve the problem this is you know as, as you said a first step from the sickest, you know, hospitalized patients. And that's reporter Robert Langrith and, of course, Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. And, Carol, what I really liked about this story from Mm. the pretty arresting cover image all the way through the piece is we talk so much about sort of botched response and unpreparedness. This was a case where a company anticipated some of this. A lot still to be seen about whether this will be the drug that we need, but a company in the right place. Yeah, and a drug that's been around for a while, Jason. And as you say, perhaps the first hopeful news of the pandemic. Check it out. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the co-founder of The Honest Company. He's got a new startup all around CBD called Prima. You just want to ask him about Jessica Alba, don't you? Maybe. All right. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, we're bringing everybody some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily radio show throughout the week. Again, we'd like to remind everybody a lot of news was going on uh, and things changing constantly. But it was really wonderful to kind of check in with people from different industries and thinking about companies, thinking about society, thinking about people. Absolutely, because business is going on, people responding in different ways to the current crisis, but also looking ahead to what is around the corner. And for that, we caught up with Christopher Gavigan. He's the co-founder of The Honest Company, heard of it, co-founder Jessica Alba. He's got a new startup in addition. It's called Prima. 
Look, I, I spend uh, most of my career really helping people in the health and wellness sector and category, trying to help them understand some of these intricacies and dependencies that we get to create and define and um, control our health. And so what you put in, on, and your, around your body matters. And we have an opportunity to realize, especially in science and medicine and academia, is really unpacking the, the, the horrific power and challenge that stress brings to the body. Stress causes us to go to the doctor. 75 to 90% of all doctor's visits is somehow there's an underlying stress condition that is causing the body to go into pain, um, illness, or disease. And so if you're confronting stress, you have to understand what the system is that manages stress. And we've got this newly discovered in the last 25 years body system called the endocannabinoid system. And there are molecules and compounds found in hemp, um, also found in cannabis, that can help manage, modulate, and help bring that system back into homeostasis because stress, balance, and just, feel, again, feeling connected and centered mm-hmm. and, and getting our bodies to heal from within is, is very much within our control and power. So these, mo- these molecules are incredibly therapeutic. And um, how do you bring them in the body? Where do you apply them? How do you get the, mo- the molecules to the receptor sites? really matters. And so Prima is a really a science-driven brand to advance that, that sense of, of, of balance and betterment. And uh, we're doing it through a host of consumer products that people can buy. Well, tell us about that, Chris, because, you know, we've talked to a lot of folks in the CBD product area. Um, and we're learning, you know, and I've tried some and some I love. They're not yeah. all created the same. And part of the problem, too, is, you know, there's no real rules um, governing kind of these products, like a lot of cosmetic or consumer products um, that are out there. So give us a little bit of insight into kind of what are some of the, the compositions or rules that you guys are setting for yourself when you create these products. It's a great question because you're absolutely right. Right now, the, the space is incredibly sophomoric, and that was one of the reasons why I decided to jump in coming off the Honest Company is to really bring a level of sophistication and quality and integrity and transparency that we know consumers outsource their trust to the brand, right? There's no guardian at the gate. The retailers are doing their best job, but they're they're really not doing the deep vetting, testing, and validation necessary. And so it's really dependent on what the brand is doing and how are they testing, what third-party certifications do they have. So we're, we've been doing... A, so much work on number one, the underlying science of getting the, the bioavailability, as we call it, and getting the molecules inside the body at a safe way. We have organic farming practices for a hemp, so you're assuring purity. We're testing the um, the extract, the hemp extract, five times to assure potency of the ingredient. We're working with um, third-party uh, credible experts to re- ensure that per- purity and potency, and 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 then number one, and then uh, number two, giving the consumer full transparency. And so every bottle of of, of Prima product has a QR code that you can literally bring up test results there. And and then it's also helping the consumer navigate the space. So at the end end of the day, you have to be an education content forward company, especially in this space, because as you said, it is confusing. It is nuanced. And who's doing the work and who's got the pedigree and experience. And so we've done a lot of educational work. We have over 100 pieces of original content to help give people 
the right demystification, the right understanding, the, the credible expertise necessary to navigate it, and then giving them, um, as I said, the products. But it is. It's about connection. It's about understanding. There's a level of emotion that every person has with a consumer brand, and that emotion is trust. And so right. how are you building and showcasing that trust over time? Well, and and talk a little bit about that, because I do feel like with Honest Company, that is something you guys really ha- have nailed, is that sort of emotional connection, both through the mm-hmm. design of the products, the composition of them, and the, and the positioning. How do you take that vibe, as it, as it were, and, and translate it here? What did you learn from that experience that you're applying here? It, it, it's, as you said, the trustworthiness of the brand is in how you position and how you to so the tone and manner with which the brand um, has comes forth. So it's in your design systems and your creative systems. It's in your words you choose. And ultimately, you're building relationship of, of not disruption, like this whole idea, I'm creating a disruptive brand in this category, especially in the health and well-being category, you're creating a peace of mind brand. Because yeah. again, you're putting these things in your body and you're helping people move through very challenging phases of their life, both physically and emotionally. So if, if CBD is known for its anti-inflammatory, it's pain-relieving, it's immunomodulating properties, right? So anti, anti-stress, better sleep, um, right. help me with my muscles and joints. You need to create a deep, deep relationship. And so it is about, it's about um, transparency and, and, and conversation. It's about industry stewardship and creating best-in-class products that actually work Right, you. I can get anyone to buy anything once. Right, as, right. A, as a great marketer or a great copywriter, like oh my gosh, create a a, a sexy label and, and a beautiful product, and people will buy. But they're only going to buy. Um, they're they're only going to come back if right. it works. And so efficacy and performance, and this idea that I actually what you told me is true and consistent over time, that's what builds a beautiful relationship. I, I the yeah. whole idea of brand saying we're authentic. Authentic is is just another way to say I'm doing the same thing time and time again right. with a level of dependency well, and consistency. And that's Prima CEO Christopher Gavigan, also a co-founder of the Honest Company. Good to get his perspective because I do think, Carol, it's safe to say we, you and I, and mm. many people we know and many people out there focusing more on health and wellness yeah. and trying to understand how to cope in many ways, both physically and mentally. Thank God for CBD, red wine, and a Peloton. Just going to say, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, restaurateur Rick Walstead on reopening in the time of COVID-19. He actually was a little bit optimistic, maybe a lot optimistic, about getting the restaurant world back to so-called normal. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of our favorites, and we think some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show. And Jason, one of those conversations, this guy, um, man, this was a great chat because he's a restaurateur, Rick Walstead. He's been in the industry for about 30 years and counting. And what's interesting is he's got properties in Atlanta, Connecticut, uh, in the New York metro area. He's brought back about 75% of his employees and, you know, was our first dose, I feel like, of optimism in the badly beaten down restaurant industry, right? Everybody, we, we see the closings. We've seen some really prominent chefs and owners of restaurants saying, we're not going to bring back all of our properties. And yet from him, we got some optimism. 
I mean, all our restaurants were basically closed on, you know, 48-hour notice. So, um, and then we started to do, um, started to do curbside and delivery takeout. So we ramped up that, we ramped that up. And then now we are getting ready to bring back our staff and uh, opening, you know, we already opened in two markets in um, Houston and Atlanta and they're getting ready to open in Connecticut, uh, three restaurants here next week. So it's been a very busy time right. um, trying to navigate, you know, this whole, this whole series of events. Right. So let's talk about Atlanta. It's my hometown. I know exactly where your restaurant is. It's actually in my old neighborhood of Buckhead uh, oh, down great. there. Very familiar with that whole uh, that whole area. It is bustling normally. It is you know one of the, the, the prime locations uh, you have there for Le Colonial uh, there in Buckhead. What does it take to reopen uh, at this point? Well, we have uh, I have two restaurants in Buckhead, uh, Le Colonial and Le Bilbouquet. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was a little tricky. Um, what we did here when we were, we were told that we were allowed to open, uh, we actually waited for one week. We did not open right away, even though we could. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt that the public sentiment was, a little bit questionable uh, about the decision to open at the time, and we only opened for open air dining. Okay. Uh, we decided not to open up inside uh, and sort of face face um, in the opening. Um, and uh, but after the first week, I have to say that uh, you know, considering the restraints that we have in place with the with the uh, occupancy, the social distancing, um, and so forth, uh, greatly reducing our, you know, capability of, of, of doing our normal business. Um, the first week is quite promising, and we're very happy with it, actually. Um, and the customers and the clients, you know, seem to really appreciate us opening. And, uh, and um, so um, I'm happy of considering everything. What you? No matter no, no matter what, right. I mean, even in you know in a best case scenario, in a best case scenario, I think we do about as good as we can in the, in the both markets that we have open. In the best case scenario, we are you know going to be down anywhere from twenty five to thirty five percent pre pandemic, before the pandemic. That's basically that's the best case scenario with the restrictions and so forth in place. Wow. So what's it been? I mean, so what are the restrictions, because it's interesting, we've been having a lot of conversations um, live on air, also in social media, and there are folks who say, you know, it's going to be a weird experience, you know, I'm not going to enjoy it, but give us, you're doing it, tell us what it's like, and well, the social distancing involved, and, and what the experience yeah, is like. Well, you know, there's no no real playbook on this, I mean, mm. you know, uh, uh, I, what we do is that we take sort of a, a cautious approach, uh, but then also, you know, uh, being optimistic. So the first thing, we got, it's all about sanitation and safety. So what we start with is that we make sure that our staff and employees are happy to report to work, feel safe at work, and feel good about what we do. Um, so obviously you have to follow the government mandate of the restrictions, whether it's the occupancy of 25% or 50%, it depends what state you're in. But if the staff feels 
good about what we do, then they are proud of what we do, and that transforms over to the customer because then they feel safe also. So it's sort of a chain reaction. And that's restaurateur Rick Wallstead. Um, I got to say, Jason, I think I, I learned a lot about what they're doing, the steps that they're taking to reopen restaurants. And, you know, he's a reminder having properties in different locations around the country that not every reopening is going to be the same or happen at the same time. Well, and I loved how specific he got with us because mm-hmm. I think we're all sitting here wondering, you and I talk about it in our show almost every day, what's it going to be like when we walk into a restaurant again? I mean, it's mind-blowing given all the ways that, you know, you and I tend to move around that I haven't been, I haven't sat down in a restaurant in almost three months now. It's kind of remarkable. It is remarkable. And what's interesting too is he was thinking also like a businessman, thinking, you know what, there might be some new revenue lines like curbside right pick up, you know, at high-end restaurants that never would have happened before, but had to happen because of the shutdown. And maybe that continues and provides, like I said, a new revenue stream for restaurants going forward. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we chat with the CEO of online therapy company, Talkspace. Got to get your head right. And it's the subject of a story in the magazine this week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, we're bringing everybody some of our favorite conversations from our daily radio show throughout the week. And that included one that's actually tied to a story in the magazine this week. That's right. It's a piece by Cynthia Kuhn. She's one of our favorite reporters across the empire. And it's all about how in the midst of the pandemic, more people are turning to online therapy to deal with anxiety, depression, and strife within their relationships. All of that being locked in place, sheltered in place, yeah. has some unintended and maybe unexpected consequences. And Jason, one of those online therapy sites has actually seen their web traffic double in just three months. The owner of that site and the co-founder of that site is Oren Frank at the online therapy company Talkspace. Here's what he had to say. So help us understand what Talkspace is and and how you came to create it because you had a long career or a very successful career uh, in the ad game, uh, I believe, and and you happened upon this through some personal experience. Tell us the story. So that's true. I I was in marketing and advertising for many years and I'm now repenting and paying for my sins, I guess. (laughs) and, and and we started Talkspace because we just thought that psychotherapy was such a wonderful profession and had so much added value. And it was just a shame that so few people actually have access to it. So our mission from day one was, can we actually open up access for everyone who wants to at least try talking to a therapist? It has helped both me and my co-founder is also my wife, my partner, uh, tremendously in our lives. And we thought, you know, the world has to be a better place if we could open this up for everyone. So that was the, the I would say, the initial or the beginning in, around 2012. And so tell us about the, the technology because, you know, this is beyond what you have created is beyond just a, a situation where people can, can do this remotely. There's some artificial intelligence built in, I, I believe. Help us understand how that works. So, you know, behavioral health and psychotherapy and psychiatry are, as I said before, wonderful professions. They're very rich in theories, but they're kind of poor in data. Uh, Where you introduce an online modern technology platform, the thing that you begin to do is you begin to aggregate and accumulate vast uh, uh, troves of data that can be used to learn and see patterns 
and then effectively and and when someone uses our our technology or our platform they can do video they can do audio they can write to each other it, it's their choice but we can analyze this and actually learn how the best treatment courses look like uh, what are the best lines of interventions that will apply to uh, certain kinds of conditions or acuities when you have a large enough data set, you can do what's called very large-scale regressions mm. and begin to get, you know, a faint idea of what works better than other approaches. Because in, in all honesty, if, if you went to a therapist in, in Manhattan, you don't know how good they are. You don't know how many people they helped in the past. And more than anything else, you don't know if they're, he or she is a good fit for you, for your right. particular need. You know, right. therapy is a little bit like dating. Well, and I want to talk more about the use of machine learning and AI and all of this in a moment. But I do wonder about the therapist that you use. What's the screening involved? Tell us a little bit about that process. So we have close to 5,000 therapists on the network in all 50 states. And because we have this this, uh, level of data, we can actually know who is a good fit and a great therapist that will deliver good clinical outcomes on this platform. Um, So I can tell you one thing that probably won't surprise you. But we found only two strong correlations, one stronger than the other, uh, towards what makes a really good therapist. So the first one, interestingly enough, is having around seven or eight minimum years of experience post-supervision. That delivers significantly better clinical outcomes. Uh, So if you look at our network, they they all qualify to this. So on average, they have a tenure from nine to ten years. And the second one, Carol, won't surprise you at all, and it actually applies to uh, most of uh, our life, is that women are better. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, no surprise. No <laughs> surprise. <laughs> yeah. I, we I, actually have a segment later in the week about how leaders, you know, during crisis, better women. I, I'm <laughs> women the only better. person who can see Carol during this show right now, Oren, <laughs> and I can tell you that she is giving her not surprised face uh, and her slightly... Um, Careful. Uh, I don't want to say smug. I don't want to say smug, but a certain face. Uh, You and I, we should join forces to our next startup, which is handling over, handing over the world to women. Tell us, Orin, how much of your site um, has gone up, your app, in terms of uh, since we've been kind of, since we've been in lockdown for the last two months. So it's changing every day, but we see at least a doubling of our traffic of people that are coming in and are looking for help. And we can see it coming from two sources. One is, you know, beyond the pandemic that we talk about all day, there's a second, I would say, epidemic, which is one of mental health, which is triggered by by COVID-19. So you see people that are the amount of pain and suffering and 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 really sad and heartbreaking stories that are out there is, is, has grown dramatically. And on top of that, you see, uh, I would say, a second source of people that, that used to go to face-to-face therapy, but it's unfortunately not available right now. So they're looking for help elsewhere. But overall, we see more than a double of the people that are looking for help with us. Oren, do you feel like this notion of, of going to therapy or, or talking to someone is becoming more widely accepted and acceptable? Are we getting more comfortable talking uh, about mental health? It's a great question, Jason, and, and I don't want to be, you know, give you a wishful thinking answer. Mm-hmm. I think 
I think stigma is improving, but it's not equally distributed. I think, you know, when we have um, a conversation with people that live in Manhattan, it's part of their daily lives. Yep. It's not anything that's threatening. I, I think one of the uh, interesting things that we learned over the last eight years is that actually remote care sometimes helps alleviate stigma um, because part of stigma is that very awkward I would say, feeling or experience once you meet the therapist face-to-face for the first time. At that point in time, he or she are a complete stranger, and sometimes it's very painful for you to talk about whatever is troubling you. So there's a sense of awkwardness of being judged that is part of stigma itself. So some of the younger people, the millennials, a.k.a. millennials, feel much safer in writing about it from afar. Right. And we, we we see an interesting phenomena in which people begin to write to the therapist. And after a couple of months, they will once they trust him or her, they will do a live video session because now they are willing to expose themselves. Wow, yeah. that's re- that's really interesting. Sort of mixing the mixing the media in in some ways. What I find fascinating for such a developed society, smart society, developed country, is that we don't really respect health whether it's physical health or mental health, it's really kind of mind-boggling for the amount of money that we spend on a lot of stuff. And I mean, we might individually, but I, I think even the medical world doesn't necessarily appreciate or certain aspects of it um, or in the importance of mental health. I like, why isn't, it, why isn't it that we all go in every year for kind of a, I don't know, you know, that that's got to be part of our mental, mental health checkup? Yeah. Like, of course, you're, you're so right, and, and I've, I've made the same you know, argument to countless people in, in, in my past, but I really think that in here we have some hope and some positive change. I think you know, much of healthcare is delivered by large employers in the United States, and I think a, a certain faction of them really understands that and will prioritize mental health and mental wellness uh, just as much as they do any other form of healthcare. I think systematically, you know, the healthcare system, you know, someone very wise once told me that the United States have the best medicine in the world and probably the world's healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, I think the healthcare system is catching up to that as well. And I can tell you that we also operate uh, enterprise, so business to business, and we have a, we've had a huge growth of uh, large payers that understand that they need to provide this kind of access and have started working with us in the last couple of months or as of uh, COVID-19. So I think we're actually making progress there. And I don't know how long it will take, um, but I'm, I'm, with that, I'm pretty confident that, that it will be uh, provided to, uh, to America. We just have to. It just makes sense. And that's Talkspace CEO Oren Frank. Really enjoyed catching up with him. A very thoughtful guy. Had a whole career in the ad and marketing game before he created Talkspace with his wife. It was based on their experience in therapy. And what I loved is this is really taking it to a much wider audience, Carol. Yeah, be sure to check out the full interview, certainly on our podcast, and also check out Cynthia Kuhn's story in the magazine. That wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio. We're live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
And you can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. This week it's with Mark Ein. He's the chairman of Castle Systems, owner of the City Tennis Tournament down in D.C., a guy who has seen a lot when it comes to cities and sports. He also has a lot of thoughts on the future of the workplace. All right. Stay safe, everyone. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.